Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I uh, have a special love for this time of year because when I was a farmer, this was the time when you gather everything in. There's a harvest. And, uh, you know, uh, we always wanted our, not our barns, but our grain bins to be full. Amen. And, uh, you know, God is faithful. And he says, you do this and I'll do this. And so if we're faithful to him, you can just count on the fact he's going to be faithful to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for blessing us with abundance. Thank you, Lord, for every good gift that comes from you. And Lord, we give back to that, to you, that portion that you have blessed us with. And you've asked us to be obedient in giving back to you so that your work can be accomplished. Thank you for these gifts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving. May the Lord bless you. Thank you for your help, worship team. You guys do a great job. You guys will notice that Dana said we're going to feed you after worship. We just wanted you to make sure on that so you can still sing, because I, I know how a feeding with a, or trying to sing with a full stomach affects you guys. So <laughs> you bet. Well, good morning, everyone. It's Time for part five of our sermon series. We've been talking about the book of Philippians where Paul writes a letter of joy in the midst of adverse circumstances. And I don't know if you picked up on this by now, but I'm just going to confess to you this morning. Uh, the reason I chose to do this sermon series that is now 25 years old and that I'm reworking to bring it up to date is because I'm at a point in my life where I need to choose joy. I need to choose joy in the midst of circumstances that I would have preferred not having to go through, but still, it's part of life, and, and this is my way of dealing uh, with, with my need for choosing joy. We are in Philippians chapter number two this morning. Complete joy comes from being united with Christ, and in so doing, we become of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, when we discover this thing called unity with Christ, there's an amazing thing happens. Anybody know what it is? When we find ourselves in unity with Christ, we also find ourselves in unity with one another. 
It's just a, it, it's just a product of having the same mind and same heart as that of Jesus. You see, unity doesn't mean that we're all alike. Uh, we're not robots. We're people with personalities. We're people with individual characteristics that characterize us or set us apart from one another. How many of you are glad you're not like me this morning? Go ahead and just admit it. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, you know, the question, when, when I say something like that, the question then becomes, so how do we live in unity? How, how do we live in unity when we have different likes, we have different dislikes, we have different convictions, we have, we have individual tastes, just about everything? Just a few examples. I like 70s rock and roll. Other people like country music. I like baseball. Others like football. I much prefer winter over summer. Let the grumbling begin. I, I, I prefer a blended worship service. Uh, you know, I, I, others only want to hear the old hymns. I like a blending of the two. Some prefer a King James translation. I prefer more modern translations. Some worship boisterously, and I prefer being somewhat reserved in my worship. Some like hellfire and brimstone preaching. I much prefer grounded teaching about the benefits of having a relationship with Jesus. Now, having heard all of those preferences of mine, how many of you feel disunity begin to well up within your heart? <laughs> Why? Because we, we all have different tastes. We all have different preferences. We're not alike. So answering how we live in unity despite our differences can be summed up with one word, and it's the subject that Paul talks to us about in the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter number 2. If you have your Bibles or your smartphone, uh, we have the Version app. You can turn there and get all the outline and the notes and the Scripture references for our, my message this morning. That one word is humility. Humility. Jesus described himself, you don't need to turn here unless you just want to, but in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus described himself in this way. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He described himself as being lowly in heart. That is a definition of humility. So let's see what Paul has to say about it, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, say it with me, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for humbling yourself and coming to be one of us. We know, Lord, that you did that because of your great love for us and being aware of our hopeless condition as a result of sin, you willingly gave up all of your divine attributes and came to be like one of us to die in our place. Lord, words can't even express our gratitude for that Amazing, amazing act. And now, Lord, speak to us, Lord, about how we can have the same mind, the same attitude as that which you have had during this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let's just take a quick poll. How many of you found that kind of difficult? Again, thank you, Betty. Come on now. Isn't it true? It's difficult to consider others as being more significant than yourself. But think about this. Jesus made himself nothing. Now we're talking about God here, right? Jesus made himself nothing, took upon himself the form of a servant, born just like you and I were born... And being like us, he humbled himself, becoming even obedient to the point of death, and death, not just any death, but death on a cross. Why? Because he considered us to be more significant than himself. Now, if that doesn't humble you, you need to get your humbler fixed. Jesus considered us more significant than himself. I would just suggest that if the Son of God can do that, it might be a good idea that we should as well. So Paul is telling the church in Philippi here that they should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. What what kind of attitude is that? Well, it's found here in these first four verses that we read from chapter number 2. In another place, in John chapter 1, verse number 1, the Apostle John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus in his nature was God, but he didn't consider that being equal with God a thing to grasp, but instead made himself nothing. 
Paul tells us something here. We're, we're to be in unity with the mind of Christ. And that's, you know, when, I mean, that's a big statement. Being in unity with the mind of Christ. Oh, my goodness, if all of us had the mind of Christ. <laughs> but the thing about having the mind of Christ, and that is something that each of us should be striving for, but the idea of being like Jesus kind of adds the potential of going to our heads. I mean, if somebody would walk up to you, Rod, and say, Rod, you are just like Jesus. Well, not only would you be flattered, humbled. There you go. I mean, what, a, what, what better thing to have someone say about you? But even understanding that somebody thinks that we're like Christ, we know in ourselves we have a long way to go before we're like Jesus. Uh, you know, the, the danger is if somebody actually accepts the, the statement that, man, you're a lot like Jesus, the temptation is to become so heavenly minded that they become of no earthly value. So we have to, we have to balance that. How do we become like him without it going to our heads? The answer again, humility. Verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, you got to admit, this idea of having the same mind of Christ, as that of Christ Jesus, being like Jesus, that's a pretty lofty place of exaltation. So, we have to understand what it was that depicted the mind of Christ and what the secret to having lasting joy is all about. We like the idea of being exalted. I've known people that like the idea of being exalted so much that they will toot their own horn because nobody else will. Uh, we, we look at the words of Jesus, though, from Matthew chapter 23, verse number 12, and he gives this warning. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The problem lies in the fact that most of us have an issue with this idea of humility. You know what that issue is? It's a big four-letter word. It's called self. We've even made it sound a little better when we attach the word selfishness to it. Anybody ever known anybody who was selfish? No poking the person next to you, that's not allowed. But you see, Paul understood that. Paul even addressed his own selfishness in, in, when he was writing to the church in Galatia. He said to them in chapter 2, verse number 20, I, when he's saying I, he's speaking of self, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul understood that each of us have the need to die to self. And along with that, selfishness. In, in order to be like Christ, what Paul is saying is we need a new identity apart from ourself. That's why 
That's why he said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? He is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Jesus, in talking to a leader of the Sanhedrin whose name was Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse number 3, said, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We have to put our selfish nature to death and be resurrected into a new nature. And then, again, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 6, if we abide in him, we ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Did you catch that? If we abide in him, then we ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. We ought to be like him. Our lives ought to be a reflection of his life. So you're thinking, okay, okay, Terry, you're telling me that we need to be humble. Well, I feel like I am humble. Well, I'm glad you feel that way, but just let me share with you a couple of things, a few ways, if you will, in which our old nature, that is self, sometimes tries to creep back into our new identity. Any of you ever have that problem? Self trying to raise its ugly head in your life? Um, I, I just thought about a couple of ways. And tragically, there are times when the very root of our selfishness rears its ugly head in the place where we think that it would be the least likely to appear. The church. Um... I'll call it religiosity. We perfect our religious ways. There are times that we can have an attitude toward the church of, church, what have you done for me lately? You know, the ones who who come to church solely for the purpose of what they can get out of the church. (laughs) I had a, a years and years ago now, in one of the first churches that Brenda and I pastored, I had a couple of guys come to my office. They had white shirts and black ties on. <laughs> and they expressed an interest in coming church on Sunday. Now, knowing what those guys were and what their mission was, I thought, that's, that's really strange. Why would they want to come to church Sunday? Well, in talking with them, One of them was very bold and actually admitted why they wanted to come to church Sunday. Anybody care to take a guess what it was? So he could find contacts. So he could find contacts so that they could go knock on their door and tell them a gospel other than the one that we were preaching. The what have you done for, for me lately, Christian. There are also those who are the give-to-get Christians. They're the ones that, how do I want to say this? They give of them their finances easily because they want God's blessing. And there's everything right about that. But you start talking to them about giving of their time... And that takes on a whole different meaning. 
You see, giving isn't just about putting in the offering, friends. Giving is the giving of our entire selves to the plan and purpose of God. It's not about what you can get out of it. Then there's the, how, there, there's the worst one of all in my estimation, that I love you as long as you don't cross me, Christian. That doesn't need much explanation, does it? But here, here's why I give those to you. I gave you three different categories. The what have you done for me lately, Christian? The give to get, Christian. And I'll love you as long as you don't cross me, Christian. What if, what if we dropped those tags from the title of the word Christian? Do you think that would make us somewhat more like Jesus? I think absolutely it would. After all, how did Jesus respond to what the church of his day had done for him lately? I'll tell you how. He died for them. The church are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Oh, the Romans carried it out. But it was the church because they didn't like his brand of, of, of good news. He didn't fit into all their suppositions. He didn't fit into their religiosity. Jesus said something along these lines. He said, your traditions, they don't mean anything. He talked about a relationship. The very people that followed Jesus were the ones that the church had rejected. And they began to follow Jesus because he established a relationship with them. He wasn't concerned that they cross all the T's and dot all the I's of what the church to-do list required. He told them it's about having a relationship with me. So, again, you see, here's the thing. Jesus really touched on this when he, when he encountered a rich young ruler. It's found in Luke chapter number 18. Again, you don't need to go there unless you just want to. But the story goes like this. That rich young ruler was a, a young man who followed all the rules. He did it all just as was expected of him. But when Jesus told him, if you want to become my follower, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to sell everything that you have and give the proceeds to the poor. Now, God's not telling every one of us that. Jesus knew the heart of this rich young ruler. And he knew that possessions was a huge stumbling block for this young man in, in coming into relationship with Jesus. And so he gave this instruction to this young man, and the Word tells us that the young man turned and walked away. He couldn't pay that kind of price. Paul talks to us about the blessing of loving unconditionally. He says it in Romans chapter number 3. Let's just quickly turn back there. You know this verse. You see, I have a problem. I always get, if Paul could have just fixed this, Romans 6.23 and Romans 3.23. If he had just made them different verses, I wouldn't have the problem with confusion. But he says it to us in Romans chapter 3, verse number 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace because they earned it. 
I'm just testing you to see if you're following along. They are justified by his grace as a gift. Now I'll turn just a couple of chapters over to chapter number 5 and look with me at verse number 8. It says, and boy, I'm thankful for this verse, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about unconditional love. You may be a sinner, but I love you. I died for you. That thing, that statement can be made about every one of us in this room. We were all sinners. We were like sheep without a shepherd, as Isaiah said. But Christ died for us while we were in that condition because he loved us. And his love wasn't based upon us following a set of conditions. He loved us unconditionally. So we have to put self to death once and for all. It's time to stop worshiping our own selfishness and in humility worship Christ whose likeness we need to be transformed into. So let me go back to the idea then, again, of having unity with Christ and with one another. Have you noticed how in times of adversity and testing, all the differences that people have somehow fade into the background and no one focuses on the differences? I I remember reading in in, uh, history class that the scenes in air raid shelters in the country of England back during World War II. Different people from different classes of life, they shared a common need of being sheltered together from the bombs that Germany was dropping on them, and they forgot all of the differences that they had, and they became as one. Now, we don't have to even go back that far. Although I will say this, I can also remember my dad telling of days during that war when he was at work laying the runway for the airport in Garden City and of the sacrifices that people even in that community were making just for the sake of getting through a very difficult time in our country's history. Everyone rich, poor, or in between were subjected to gas rationing. How many of you remember that? I don't remember it, but... I've heard about it. Everyone became willing to be conservative in the effort to supply the arsenal that was needed to fight that war. Everyone grieved when a red cross appeared in the window of a home. Didn't matter if that home was your next door neighbor or a home across town. Everyone grieved at the loss that that family was experiencing. People forgot themselves for the sake of others. They didn't consider it to be a sacrifice to give of themselves in order to provide for those on the battlefront. More recent memory, I remember back that terrible day, 9-11-2001. We were at a minister's conference in Wichita and Brenda woke me with the news that an airplane had flown into one of the World Trade Center towers. And I awakened just as the second plane was flying into the second tower. And instantly I knew, boy, we're at war. This is, this is not good. And, and so we went back to our church that we were pastoring in Salina. And, and for the course of the rest of that week, that happened on a Tuesday. For the entire week that followed, 
everyone in the community of Salina, Kansas forgot all about our denominational differences, forgot what side of the tracks they were from, forgot all of their differences, all of their, their unique things, and united together. We had a community worship service. Every church in the community involved. People forgot about their differences. And they did it for the sake of others. Didn't matter if they were rich, poor, Republican, Democrat. They were in unity. Unity became a byproduct of diversity. Everyone there felt loss. Everyone felt pain. But everyone found their patriotism. It was a a great time. And I, I pray that that would have remained, but it didn't take long for the differences to resurface. I was part of the planning committee for the community worship service. We were going to have it on Sunday evening the following week. And the lady in charge, she began to lose that sense of sacrificing our differences for the sake common good of everybody. And she began to hear grumblings from some of the denominations that were going to be present, particularly the Buddhists and the Muslims. And she came to us as the board and she said, okay, we're going to have to make some changes to our community worship service. And here's what one of the changes are. We're not going to mention the name of Jesus. Really? Well, it would be offensive to some of the other faiths involved. Let me tell you what, friends. You talk about being grieved. And, you know, what started out as a good thing to to unify people instantly became something that just highlighted our differences rather than forsaking them. It just didn't take long. And it doesn't take long for people to fall back into this, this my needs first attitude. Back when Paul was writing this letter of joy to the Philippian church, he knew that there was nothing that the Roman Empire, who was in charge of everything at that time, could throw at this Philippian church to weaken them. He knew that persecution for that church was only going to serve to make them stronger as it had in his own personal life. His warning to them was that if they ever did become weak, it would be as a result of selfishness. Now, in explaining the example of Christ's humility, Paul goes into great detail here, and he divides Christ's humility and that which we are called to model into three categories. And I'm going to give them to you very quickly. The first category is prior to Christ's incarnation. The second category is the timing of his arrival and ministry here on the earth. And the third category is when he checked out from the earth and went back to heaven. 
So just keep those three things in mind. Verse 6, Paul starts speaking to us of Jesus existing in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, very simply, it means this. Jesus was co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal deity. He was very God. He was very God. He was God in the flesh. Surrounded by the presence of his heavenly Father, fully capable of enjoying the praise and the adoration of angels, he existed in a climate of perfection and absolute sovereignty without bodily form, but he existed. Then God the Father sends him down to earth in human form. He became a man. But when he became a man, we must also remember He's still God. He's God in the flesh. How often have I heard people refer to Jesus as coming into existence as a baby in a manger? No. No, he didn't come into existence at conception. He was our eternal creator. He was before anything was. He just came in human form. He became a man. But he was still God. He possessed two natures, that of God and that of man. And that's why theologians refer to him as being the God-man. Those two natures cohabitated in one physical body just like yours and mine. And while here on earth, still being still God, he was limited in his activities to that of an earthly existence. That is, Jesus experienced hunger just like some of you are experiencing right now. Jesus experienced weariness, which several of you, I can tell, are experiencing right now. (laughs) He experienced pain, just like we often do. But he did not consider his being equal with God as being something to be held on to. It's kind of like thinking of a a businessman who, who builds his business from scratch... And yet, because of age and technological changes in the business world, comes to the realization that he must turn his business over to new leadership with fresh ideas and methods. Now, any of you who've ever experienced that know that that's not an easy transition. Anyone who has experienced that type of transition will tell you it's very difficult. For example, if I were to go back and be a farmer, which I haven't done since 1991... If I were to go back today with the knowledge that I have of how I farmed in 1991, it would be like going back to the dark ages. It'd be like taking the farm back into the dark ages. I'd be lost. Conversely, I remember how difficult it was for my dad to turn the farm over to me back in 1979. He had his ways. But technology had advanced and brought about better ways. Now, bless his heart, it was difficult for him to watch me incorporate some of those changes. But he understood humbling himself. He understood the idea of being demoted and to accept that his demotion was necessary Boy, if we could all just uh, accept that quality that sometimes we, it's like John the Baptist saying, I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. 
Jesus willingly demoted himself from his equality with God. He's not forced into it. He willingly does it, and he came to people just like us willingly. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus gave up all the splendors of heaven to come to people who were going to curse him, spit on him, beat him, hang him on a cross to die, and laugh in the process. He gave up his equality with God for that. But he didn't, however, give up being God. He emptied himself of his divine attributes, the independence of his power, and yet he still operated in full cooperation with his heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit. He took upon himself the form of a servant born into an earthly existence by likely a couple of Jewish teenagers whose names were Mary and Joseph. He grew up in a little village called Nazareth. And anyone in Israel at that time knew that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. He grew up under the shame of stories and rumors about how he had been conceived out of wedlock to Mary and Joseph. And on top of all of that, Paul reminds us that he became obedient to death. The eternal Son of God, the God who always has been, still is, and will always be, became obedient to death. And add to that the fact that in that particular culture, anyone put to death by being hung on a cross was to be accursed. You see, the cross of that day was the worst kind of death for a criminal. They were hung naked, swarmed by insects and, and until death came and then left for the vultures to eat. Do you see that transition from equality with God to being crucified as a common criminal? And he did it willingly. So why? Why did he do it? Because he put the interests of others, yours and mine, above his own interests. Came as the God-man to die. What a cost to living with that purpose. Before any of us get too hot and bothered about how much you've had to sacrifice in order to follow Jesus, you might check out the comparison of Philippians 2. What is our life and ministry costing us? It costs Jesus His life. And I'm guessing that a humble lifestyle probably won't cost any of us in this room our lives, but it may well cost us some of our rights. It may well cost us some things that we really don't desire or look forward to giving up. I found, as many of you have, that ministering to people at the point of their need sometimes costs me the schedule that I'd like. Amen? How many times have I really had something important that we wanted to do and something comes up at the last minute and requires my presence or my ministry and you do that because that's what, you're, that's what you're called to. It's a part of taking up our cross. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 8, verse number 34? If you want to follow me, you have to deny self. Take up your cross and follow. 
Now, here's where it gets really good. All of that sacrifice, all of that humbling does not end with Jesus hanging on the cross. It doesn't end there. Because verse 9 says, Therefore, because of all of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So let me give you the Reader's Digest version. Jesus humbles himself, goes to the cross and dies. He's buried in a borrowed tomb as a result of a friend having pity on him. And he's left there, buried and dead. And at that same time, there were still remaining 11 disillusioned, discouraged disciples hiding under lock and key, wondering, so what do we do now with the rest of our lives? It's over. It's done. What are we going to do now? Not one of those followers of Jesus at that time believed in the possibility of a resurrection. But three days later, he comes out of that tomb, and to their surprise, he ministers to them over the next 40 days, and then goes back to heaven. Now, that's the Reader's Digest condensed version. But when he goes back to heaven, I just have to believe that that's when the shouting began. Because when he went back to heaven, it says that God has highly exalted him. Did you notice that? God has past tense, highly exalted him. You know, Paul liked to use what we call compound superlatives. The original language of verse number 9 used words that meant supremely, superlatively exalted Jesus. I'm imagining when Jesus came back to heaven, all of heaven stood still and began applauding. They, they began celebrating. Uh, angels started shouting. God then gave him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. How many of you think that's a pretty cool thing? Would you not agree with me that being humbled will eventually have its rewards? He came back to heaven with a body and he's going to live there in bodily form for the rest of his existence, a changed body, a glorified body, and he has promised that ours will be as well after we die and are resurrected from the dead. He is in the presence of God the Father with a name that is above every name, Jesus Christ Lord. Now, just picture this in your mind. All knees bowing. Every tongue confessing. Angelic host worshiping around the throne along with believers who have gone on before. They're all worshiping as a result of him humbling himself. And not only that, But Paul used the three-letter word that says, all will bow down. All will worship him. 
those who are alive at that time, those alive when he returns, those who serve and love him, all, but that's not where it ends. There's not going to be one person left who will stand up and resist making him Lord. That includes the worst of skeptics, the most unbelieving atheist, the one who worships other gods, all are going to bow before him and proclaim that he is Jesus Christ Lord. Paul says even those under the earth. And there he's referring to the hosts of hell and the devil and all those demons, those who refuse to acknowledge him as Jesus Christ Lord while here on earth. They're now going to proclaim it, but for them it's going to be too late. Those who refused his grace while here on the earth, are going to submit to his authority even while in hell. Now, trust me when I tell you that Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering and worrying about whether or not everyone will acknowledge him. It is an absolute certainty. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord. You see, this is a passage about humility. It's a passage about humility, but it ends with being exalted by God. How many of you think it's a good idea that we have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus? I want to be exalted by God. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You've done a good job. You fought the fight. You've run the race. It's about an eternal relationship, one that has to begin while we're still here. You can't wait. Had somebody tell me once, I'll wait, old, wait until I'm older to get religion. <laughs> has nothing to do with religion, it has everything to do with, with a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. Worship team, would you come, please? I forgot to turn my watch back. I thought, man, I preached way too long. <laughs> no amens are allowed. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm reminded of the Old Testament words of the, the prophet Micah. He said in chapter 6, verse number 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God? You know, friends, some of us need to, need to start acting like and being people who want to reach the loss of this community. We, we really do, and we, we need to make that our only priority. I mean, I love coming together with you folks on Sunday morning. I do, because we're family. But the biggest reason that we come together is because there are other people out there Monday through Saturday in our everyday lives that desperately need a relationship with Jesus. 
And they need to become our priority. As much as we love coming together, the biggest priority is reaching the lost. When we get in gear, and when we start loving people into the kingdom of God, just loving people, no matter where they've been, what they've done, where they live, just start loving on them. Considering their interests as being more important than our own, here's what will happen. Jesus promised it in Matthew chapter 6, verse number 33. He said there, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. The blessing of family, the blessing of church, the blessing of coming together, the blessing of fellowship, we all love all of that. But the kingdom of God and His righteousness is that He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That has to be our mindset. Aren't you glad somebody reached out to you and told you about Jesus? Man, what a blessing. And I know that there are people in this community who are walking without hope that just need somebody to love them and tell them about Jesus. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? Lord Jesus, in this moment, in this moment, Jesus, we, we can be very open and honest with you, Jesus. You already know every detail of our lives, but just hearing us voice it back to you, we all have schedules. We all have busy lives. We all, we all have things that require our attention. But Lord, what you're telling us here is that in this letter to the Philippian church, here you are sitting at the throne of God in heaven. You're having to keep planets from colliding and stars from falling. You're having to make sure that the sun comes up every morning in the east and, the, and then sits and sets in the west of an evening. You're in control of all of that and yet you look down and you see us walking and living as sheep without a shepherd, lost, undone. And so you left all of that that required your attention and you came down here for us. You became one of us, lived like we do, experienced the same human feelings that we have. And when that wasn't accepted, you were given over to die as a common criminal. And to understand, God, that that was your plan from the beginning that you would send Jesus to us, considering our interests as more important than his own, coming to die in our place. But thanks be to God, it didn't end there. 
He triumphed over death, over hell, and over the grave. And for those of us who confess belief in Him as our Lord and Savior, we will be resurrected and glorified just as He was. So, Lord, in light of all of that, I would think it'd be very appropriate for each of us to just say to you in our own way this morning, Lord, I want to have that same mind that you had. I want to surrender everything that requires my attention. I want to surrender, if need be, my schedule. I just want you to be in the middle of everything that I'm involved in, God. And in order to do that, I have to surrender everything to you. Would you help us with that this morning, Jesus? Jesus, breathe within. And then these words. Lord, have your way. Can you say that this morning? Lord, have your way. Have your way. Lord Jesus, as we stand in this moment, our hearts, our hearts are are drawn to what you're trying to say to us. Lord, there's many of us in this room that have spent countless hours of our lives trying to, to do things on our own to make things happen to be productive in our own by our own standards Lord you're telling us this morning that we need to be more like you you gave up everything you considered others as more important than yourselves and their interests as more important than your own But the outcome of all of that is that your heavenly Father highly, superlatively exalted you and gave you a name which is above every name. Lord, when when we hear that, we say, yes, yes, you're my Lord. I confess that now. Then we hear the words of the Apostle Peter that tell us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Which means that if we remain faithful, if we surrender to your purposes, you're going to exalt us. You're going to you're going to let us know that we've, we've really accomplished what you desired for us to accomplish, and that was to become more and more like your son Jesus, allowing him to change our hearts, conform our minds, transform our lives. So, Lord, even though it felt like There were times when there was a great cost involved 
having to give up some of the things that we really didn't want to give up. The promise of your word is that if we do things your way, all of the rest is going to be added to us. Make us faithful in that, Jesus. Make us faithful. I want you to just bow with me for a moment. I want to pray for each one of us here this morning. Lord Jesus, it's popular words that have been quoted over and over from this Philippians chapter number 2. Personally, some of my favorite words in the entire Word of God. But yet, Lord, when we break it down, they're so challenging. So challenging. Requiring us to deny self in order to be exalted. So, Lord, for every person in this room that lives and breathes just like I do, help us, Lord, to practice humility. Help us, Lord, to have that same mind as you have had, that you have demonstrated. And to live our lives in such a way, Lord, that people will know beyond the shadow of doubt that you, Jesus, are our Lord and our Savior. Help us with that, Jesus. Jesus.